Good morning. Good to see you folks. want to welcome you here as well. Great to uh, see some old-timers visiting this morning. Great to have you back with us. Um, we have been studying 1 John. We got to chapter 2. It talks about the law of God. And then I've stepped back and want to talk some about the law of God for, for its importance. I don't know, do, do you ever come across passages in the Bible that are just confusing to you? I'm not the only one, right? I come across passages that are confusing to me, and when I do, I've gotten to the place where that makes me excited now, because um, when I find a passage is just confusing, I say, well, that requires more study. And when I dig deeper and study into God's Word, it guarantees an exciting discovery. And I want you to get some of that exciting discovery. For an example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 says, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And I was like, what? That just seems confusing. All of them were baptized. None were left out. And I thought baptism came after salvation. In verse 5 of that passage, it says most of them God wasn't even well pleased with. In other words, they weren't even saved. Moses is baptizing millions of people. In the cloud and in the sea, and the majority of them aren't even saved. What's going on? You know, it just seems confusing. And then I thought baptism was with water, and this passage says, no, it's with cloud and sea. And the sea's talking about the Red Sea that had been dried up, so there's no water there at all. You know, it just gets confusing. So you just dig, and you dig, and you study it more. If you go into Hebrews chapter 9, it's describing three different baptisms there, and one of them is Moses' baptism of the, the millions of people. And when you look at that baptism and how it's described, it says Moses baptized the people right after receiving the law of God. And we're going to be looking at the law. Right after they got the law of God, he says, will you keep it? And he baptized them all. Six million plus people in one day and you go back to the Exodus 24 account of that, and he says he literally threw water and blood on them. How do you baptize six million people in one day? Hebrews 9 says he dipped hyssop branch into the blood and the water, and he just threw it on the masses. And that's how he baptized them, through sprinkling of water and blood. You come to John the Baptist, and the Pharisees say to John the Baptist, why are you baptizing? Are you the prophet after Moses that's coming? Why did they pick Moses the prophet out? Because they saw John the Baptist doing the same thing Moses was doing. He was a reed shaking in the wilderness, baptizing, just as Moses was doing. And you, you dig in, you say, whoa, I didn't see all of these places in the Bible about baptism, and you just learn, and you grow, and it's exciting to see God, God really dealing with a baptism that's a union to his people, and to himself, and the signs and symbols of that. Well, I want to do the same thing with the law of God this morning. I want to dig a little deeper, because we saw in 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, that if you are a true believer in Christ, then you live and you love the law of God. That's how you affirm your salvation. That's not how, that's not how you get saved. 
But if you are a believer, you live and you love the law of God. So I said, well, we need to stop and make sure we know what the law of God is. And then I have people coming to me and says, well, David, haven't you read in the Bible that the, the law has been done away with? How is it that First John is saying we live and love the law of God to affirm our salvation, and yet Jeremiah 31 says it's, it's, it's done. We're in a new covenant, and that was old covenant. So I want to deal with that complicated passage in Jeremiah 31. I don't want to just skirt over it. It's an exciting discovery. Dig in deeper. Let's see what the law of God is in the New Testament. So look with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. And let me read this prophecy concerning the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's that time I was just talking about where Moses baptized them all, gave them the law. He says, I'm, I'm going to do something different. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, that they broke. Through, uh, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Confusing passage, talking about an Old Testament covenant or an old covenant replaced with a new covenant. When some people look at this, they say, okay, well, the new covenant, the law is on our hearts. That means the law is just a spiritual thing. The law is an intuitive thing. The law in my heart must mean I'm going to know that it's right. I'm going to feel it to be good or feel it to be wrong. It's just going to be something I, I can just look into my heart and know right and wrong. But I don't think that's what the passage says, but a lot of people interpret it that way. So we need to dig in. If we were to interpret that way, we're going to have... Well, you, you've got a problem immediately with 1 John chapter 2 and other passages that we've, some that we've already looked at. So what does this passage in Jeremiah 31 say? First of all, look at the description of the law down in verse 33. It says, I will put my law. Don't miss the pronoun, personal pronoun, my. Whose law is it? God still owns it. It's his law. It's not your law, it's not my law, it's not your disposition or my disposition. It's still God's law. I'm going to put my law on their heart. So let's look deeper in the scripture. Where does the Bible refer to my law? Let's get a description of what we're talking about to see if it's really something that could be just intuitive, spiritual awareness or something. Well, what I did is I looked up every single place in the book of Jeremiah. That's the context. Every place law or my law 
is in the book of Jeremiah. Let me give you a few of those because it takes too long to look at all of them. But look at Jeremiah 6, verse 19. And we're getting God's definition of law as he defines it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6, verse 19 says, Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my laws, or my law, they have rejected it. So this is an objective standard that God's Old Testament people knew it was written, they were made aware of it, and they knew it and rejected it. Chapter 9, verse 13. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law, there's that phrase again, that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, or walked in accord with it. So here he said, I put the law right in front of you. You know what it is. Again, this is the Old Testament law, but it's his definition of that law. It's something that is set before them, something they could hear, something they could know, something they could intentionally forsake, and they did. Um, chapter 11 has one. Let's see, let's look to chapter 26, verse 4. Chapter 26, verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I've set before you. Again, this is a law they can hear with their ears. Uh, it's not just an intuitive thing in their heart. It's an objective standard. Look at chapter 44, verse 10. Chapter 44, verse 10 says, They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. So when you get God to define his law, it just keeps coming back to you. There's no exception. It just keeps coming back. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about this objective standard that he set before the people. And they agreed, said, this is our covenant. We will do what you have told us. You've set before it. We'll do it. That's the law that Jeremiah Back in chapter 31, that's the one he's talking about. There's, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you about a new law. He's talking about my law is, well, maybe it's someplace new. Maybe the place of the law is going to be new. Maybe the structure of the law is going to be new. But it doesn't seem anywhere in Scripture that the standard itself, the law itself, has changed. But God says there's a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old covenant. So let's go back in Jeremiah 31 and look at it again and see what's new about the new covenant. And as I looked at it from that angle, I saw four things and really a fifth. And let me, let me give them all to you. First of all, uh, I want you to see the new law is fulfilled. He made it clear throughout Jeremiah that the old law didn't get fulfilled. Look at verse 32. Uh, towards the end, he says, It's not like the, the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What's different right here? My covenant they broke. 
So that covenant didn't work. It's broke. They broke it. What's new about the new covenant? It's fulfilled. It's not broke. You say, well, I didn't fulfill it. Did you fulfill it? No. Christ fulfilled it. The old covenant was broke. The new covenant is completely fulfilled. Look at um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We looked at this a few weeks ago. See it now from this angle. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which is almost wholly about God's law. It's related to God's law in so many ways. But look at this phrase after he gives them the Beatitudes and some illustrations of how they're to live. Verse 17, Matthew 5, verse 17 says, Do not think I came to abolish the law. So, I mean, you might be looking back at Jeremiah 31 and think I'm going to do away with the law that you broke. Not going to do that. As a matter of fact, he says, I have not come to abolish it. I didn't come to break it like you did, but to fulfill them. All the commandments spoken by God through his prophets, through Jeremiah. Christ came intentionally to fulfill the new covenant because the old covenant had been broke. So that's one thing that's new. The new covenant's fulfilled. Second, I want you to see the, the law's been moved. Now it's no longer on stones, it's on our hearts. Says that clearly in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, uh, towards the end, says, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. So instead of us needing to find the tablets, God says, you're going to know my law. It's going to be on your hearts. The, heart mo- the, the, the law moves from stone to hearts. And don't miss uh, verse 34, the first part. And, and everybody in this community with the law in their hearts, they will know me. Verse 34, they will no longer each one need to teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all Know me, the least to the greatest. In the old covenant, you had people in the covenant church who did not know the Lord, even leaders. You remember the sons of Eli specifically said of them, they do not know the Lord. And so the people were going around to the sons of Israel says, you know, what you need is the Lord. You need to know the Lord. You're not leading according to the Lord. And so they were begging these corrupt priests to know the Lord. God says, I'm going to change that. In the New Testament. In the New Testament, what I'm going to do is I'm going to convert people. And they're going to know the Lord. Another place he talks about this new covenant is Ezekiel. Let's look there for a minute. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. The the whole conversion story is presented here as part of the, the newness of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Verse 26, here it is. And I'll give you a new heart. Notice what's on this heart. I will give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone. And we're not going back to stone. I'm going to give you flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you, and catch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful 
to obey my rules. God said, that's what I'm promising with the new covenant. It's, the law is going to be on your hearts, and, and I'm going to put the Spirit in you in such a way that He will remind you of the law and direct you according to the law so that you will keep the law. That didn't happen. That was old. This is new. But you don't get an indication the law went out. You get an indication the law comes in. In a deeper, more meaningful way, but it's the same objective standard we call the Ten Commandments. The law is fulfilled in Christ. The law is on our hearts. Members of the covenant community are converted. The Spirit gives us a new heart and a new will to keep the law of God. So we know the Lord through this transformation that He gives us in our hearts. And to catch this fourth ingredient of this new covenant, um, chapter 31, again, of Jeremiah, right towards the end, verse 34, that I'd read earlier. He says, And I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Wow. What a beautiful in new ingredient of the new covenant. No longer God says, well, well I'll condemn you as a, as a covenant group. But rather, through conversion, I'm going to forgive your sins. And I'm not going to keep a record. In the sense that, so later on I can condemn you. I'm going to forgive you and this forgiveness is going to be of such a nature that I won't condemn you for what you've done. How does that happen? Because we've all broken the law of God. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive you on the basis of what Christ does. Christ will step in your place and He will take your condemnation. I won't remember the sin because Christ will have paid for it. He'll be condemned for you. That's the beauty of the new covenant in Christ. Inward transformation of heart that makes us radically new. A filling of His Spirit that directs us on a, to a very specific standard, the law of God, which comes upon our heart. And we come with this overwhelming assurance that we're no longer condemned in Christ, but our sins are forgiven. See, the new covenant expands. The new covenant is, is great and it's new. And it's beautiful to be a part of the new covenant community. God says, I want you to know that. He said, but I want you to know it goes even a step further. So those were four things. Here's the fifth. The new covenant comes to us without the restrictions that a lot of the old covenant placed upon the national people of God. And by that I mean the national church had three categories or kinds of laws. They had civil laws that they needed to follow to manage a nation. That's their civil government. They had ceremonial laws that were given to them to manage that whole sacrificial system you found in the Old Covenant um, that the people of God used as a way to think about sin and to purify, uh, be purified from their sins Many, many, many sacrificial laws. Ceremonial laws. In the New Covenant, we don't see God bringing the ceremonial 
or the civil laws into his international church. It won't fit. And so when we get into the new covenant, we lose those restrictions. And it's beautiful when you start thinking about all that God's done there. Um, let, me, let me give you an example of a couple so you can, you know, tie on to it. Look at Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah 31. Let's look at Jeremiah 34. 34, verse uh, 13. Here it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the, he the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. What is this? This is a civil law. So you don't find this in the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. This was a national law where God is protecting his na national church known as Israel and wanting them not to be slaves but to be free. So you've got these laws concerning slavery and other things that pertain to the nation of Israel. National laws. You don't see any of that discussion in the, in the New Testament that it needs to go on as a matter of fact. Uh, there are things in the moral law that would even prohibit it. Give you an example of a ceremonial uh, law. This, is, this being a, a civil. Look at Ezekiel 44, verses 6 through 8. Ezekiel 44, 6 through 8. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple. When you offer to me food, the fat and the blood you have broken my covenant. So again, you've broken my laws. In addition to all your abominations, and you've not kept charge of my holy things, but you've set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. He's talking about laws that kept the national temple, the national sanctuary, the national tabernacle, pure and clean. Well, that's... When God ceased having a national church and said, we're going international, there was no need to keep the national laws, the civil laws, because now we're not a nation. Now we are every tribe, nation, and tongue. So these civil laws that mattered for maintaining a, a civil government, these ceremonial laws that mattered for, for the worship services and purification of people in a national place and time. When you get into the New Testament, you see God saying, that's what I am setting aside. Um, give an example. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Here you see that clearly the ceremonial laws go away. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, I've used this before as a Christmas sermon. You can use it, dads and moms, for a Christmas uh, message in your own home. 
Verse 5, when Christ came into the world, that's Christ came as the God-man, as a babe. When he came, he turns around and says back to God the Father. It's this cool passage. And he's, so as God's talking to God, Christ is talking to God the Father. He says, uh, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. It's like, what? You commanded sacrifices and offerings in the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying is, with the coming of the new covenant, that's not desired anymore. And he's, he's showing us the transition. But a body have you prepared for me. So Christ is saying, as the second person of the Trinity, I have been fashioned into a human body. It's been prepared. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. That didn't work. Oh, covenant. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I've come to do your will. Christ never departs from God's law, from his will. We already saw Matthew 5, 17. I came not to abolish the law. I came to do it, to fulfill it, every jot and tittle. He says it again here. I have come to do the will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taking pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. I mean, that's what you do. That's the ceremonial law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away, catch this, he does away with the first, first covenant, in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of of Jesus Christ once for all. Hallelujah. See, that's the new covenant. You no longer have to come to some place and get a priest to kill a goat and a lamb and a heifer, sacrifice doves and different things to get purification. Christ has come. Saying, I don't desire that anymore. I desire to do away with that. And to offer my son, the Lord Christ, for you. And I want to do it once and for all. I want to be done here. So that it doesn't have to be repeated. So I want Christ to have the place of being the perfect sacrifice without sin. For his people, past, present, and future. And Christ says, I come to offer my body. My blood. For my people that they can keep my law. And I've come to fulfill that law. He's not talking about ceremonial laws because the ceremonial laws were done with that act. They're done away. Christ fulfilled them. Perfect life. Sinless life. Already pure. He gives that righteousness to us. How about the civil laws? You see in the New Testament, I just won't take the time the subject so deep to think through, but think through with me the civil law. Why does God never say, I need you to build the temple. I need you to establish yourself as a nation because he says, I'm not doing the national thing. Old covenant. I'm doing a new covenant, which means I want you to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. I want to go international with the kingdom of God. And so now... You're not going to be separate from the world as an exclusive nation. 
Now you're going to be in the world, but not of the world. You remember those civil laws where it says you find somebody in your midst that's not a believer, you kill them. That's not very good evangelism, right? But they were protecting a nation. It made sense as a national civil law. But now we're going international. And I want you to learn to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. I want you to be in their midst, but not of them. Which is why he says in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, other places, I want you to submit to the government where you are. Whether it's a nation, a tribe, village. I want you to learn to be submissive to civil governments. But you will no longer be your own national church. So he's given us laws that pertain to nations. But he's taken away those, that national entity we had as an Old Testament church. Replacing it with the New Testament church. I'm going to give you just two quick examples and I'll move on. Look at Matthew 22. Verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, Christ, again, is not doing away with the law. He could at this point say, well, you know, by the way, I'm doing away with laws and I'm just coming back to love. This is just going to be love. That's not what he does. He says, I want you to keep the first commandment, the great commandment. I want you to keep the second great commandment. And I want you to see those two commandments are the foundation for other commandments. That I expect you to keep. But here's the two great ones. Here's the foundational ones. That God is still putting before us. Now look also at Romans 13. Romans 13. Comes up under Paul. This passage on the law. Romans 13 verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Sounds like. First and great, second great commandments. We need to love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, any other commandment. What are those commands, by the way? They're all, ten, they're all in the list, right? Ten commandment list. Paul said, these are commandments we need to be keeping. There are others, I didn't give you the whole list. He says, but you need to be keeping them, and this is how you do it. They're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But the law is still before us. This moral standard known as the Ten Commandments. And that's what moves into the New Testament. Not the ceremonial laws. Not the civil laws, but the moral laws. The Ten Commandments. You never see Christ take them away or abolish them. And I want you to see they're clearly taught. Like in the first John passage we've already looked at. In the Matthew 5 passage we've already looked at. And I want you to see it a few other places too. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. 
how the law moves into the New Testament. Here, Paul is teaching on responsibilities of husbands and wives, chapter 5, and then he moves into chapter 6, um, responsibility of parents. Let me read Ephesians 6, the first couple of verses. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, this is right. And notice what he quotes. Honor your father and mother. That's a direct quote. From, that's the fifth commandment in the Old Testament. This is the first commandment with a promise. You know the promise. God says if you honor your father and mother, you'll live long on the earth. They won't kill you. That's basically it. So this is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, why, why, why give this out if it doesn't have any credence? If, it, if it's not an agreed upon standard? If it's not an authority? He says, I, I want to teach you how to do family life. And it begins with honoring mom and dad. Let, let's just go back to the fifth commandment. He says, and by the way, the fifth commandment is the first commandment with a promise. In other words, and so I, I went looking, I googled it. Where do we find the commandment, honor your father and mother with a promise to live, that you'll live long? The only place I've ever been able to find it is in the list of the Ten Commandments. And when Paul says it's the first commandment with a promise, he's meaning there are other commandments. But this is the first one that, that has a promise attached to it. And we know this is the fifth. There were four above that and then five after that. And this is the only place where we find this command, as Paul has expressed it, anywhere in the world. That honor your father and mother being the fifth commandment and the first one with a promise. Paul is referring to that list. And he's referring to that list because that list brings him authority. You need to follow this. This is the law. This is what God puts on our heart. This is what he draws us to. So you see it there. Uh, I want you to see it one other place. Um, 1 Timothy 6. Excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, verse 6. 1 Timothy 1, verse 6. Great passage. And there's a lot here. Let's see how much time I got to get you through some of this. But 1 Timothy 1, verse 6. Certain persons by... Swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul, so Paul is saying, okay, we've got teachers out there and they want to teach the law. Why would they even want to? Because that's an authoritative standard. He says the problem is not with the law. The problem is with these teachers. They're making vain assertions. They're using the law wrongly. They're teaching poorly. And I want to address that matter. So as he addresses that matter, first thing he says, verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, they're not doing it that way. But Paul says, I know, you know, we know the law is good. It's stronger in Romans 7. I just won't take the time to go there, but you look it up. In Romans 7, it says, not only is the Lord, excuse me, the law good, intrinsically good, 
But in Romans 7, beginning at verse 12, it says, The law is holy. The law is spiritual. The law, law is good. It's not done. What law are we talking about? Clearly, the law that comes into the New Testament is the Ten Commandments. The law of God. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Timothy um, 1. We know the law is good. Verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly sinners. Alright, think about that for a minute. Some people say, okay, here we go. The law of God... Christians don't need it. Just non-Christians need it. Because Christians are the just. All sinners would be the non-Christians. Well, I don't think that's what it says. I don't think that would be appropriate legal kind of conversation when you're talking about the law, legal matters. The just or the righteous, it, it defines that with the next phrase, but for the lawless and the disobedient. So... As believers, there's times where I don't need the law if I'm keeping the law. But as soon as I break the law, I need to step back into the law. So I need, I'm one of those lawless, disobedient people. And I need the law to guide me and direct me back. I think that's how Paul is using it. They're not, they weren't using it that way. He says, let's understand, we need the law of God. Because there's times when we're disobedient. We're disobeying, and we need to be conformed unto it. And that's how he presents it here. Let me just share three things about the law. Number one, it's intrinsically good. We've already saw that, verse 8 in Romans 7. The law is needed. Why? Because we disobey. We need it. We need to get back to it. Then I want you to see in this passage, the law is expressly the Ten Commandments that's being referred to. I was reading through my Bible uh, one morning, and as I was reading this passage... It was like, whoa, never seen that before, you know. And it just, it, it cleared up a lot of just what's going on. And this is how I was doing it. So I, I read verse 8, read verse 9. Um, see where I, it's, it's, it's laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, for profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. And I said, whoa, 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 fifth commandment. Fifth commandment. That's where it caught me. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Fifth commandment. Next one. For murderers. Oh, wow. That's the sixth commandment. For the sexually immoral. Oh, that's the seventh. Don't commit adultery. For enslavers. Enslavers, you, you take away their private property. You steal from them and you make them slaves. Oh, that's the eighth commandment. Ninth commandment. Thou shalt not lie. Liars. Perjurers. And the tenth commandment shouldn't covet, which is typically referred to as the commandment that covers everything else. And so when I started seeing the Ten Commandments expressly spoken of by Paul himself, and it grabbed me with the Fifth Commandment. And not only did I see the Fifth Commandment clearly, but all the other five under it were in the exact same order. You have them in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So the exact order. I said, well, if that's the case... I wonder if all ten are there. Am I stretching the context? You go back and you say, well, the, the phrase just is described with the term lawless and disobedient. Already dealt with that. So the next phrase, the ungodly, what's the first commandment? Have no other gods. 
You're ungodly if you choose another god. Second commandment, sinners was often referred to as someone who is idolatrous. They have chosen to make vain idols. Third commandment, or for the unholy, it's all about not speaking well of God or for God, acting in an undignified, unholy manner. Fourth commandment, the word profane. Very key part of the fourth commandment is that we don't treat the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, as profane. Hebrews use the word profane in the sense of common. It shouldn't be a common day. It should be set aside. It shouldn't be profane. And once you look through that, you say, wow. The Apostle Paul has listed all ten in order. Saying people are misusing this list. And we know it's a good list. We know it's good. We know it's right. We know it's holy. We know it's spiritual. And we've got to learn to use it because we disobey. We've got to learn to use it rightly. Ten Commandments moves into the New Testament. Christ says so. The Apostle Paul says so. Said so in Timothy. Says so in Romans. Says so in Hebrews. Just goes on and on and on. And then that's when I saw in 1 Timothy this short form of the Ten Commandments and knowing that and how to use it. So let's get to application. I've got it up here for you. Why does all of this matter? Let's look at some of this. Number one, once you see the law that God wants us to know and have, we need to agree with God. The law, this law, the Ten Commandments, it's good and it's perfect. Look at this passage with me real quick. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Verse 7. Is that what I had? Yes. The law is perfect. Perfect. It's reviving the soul. If it's perfect, you wouldn't want to do away with it. That You do away with what's imperfect. It would be imperfect to impose the national laws on an international church. It would be imperfect to impose the ceremonial laws on a people already clean in Christ. The law of the Lord, though, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it's perfect. It revives the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord. It's sure. makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, they're right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. Not for salvation, but just the blessings of having God's word. It is good to agree with God. His law is good for us. Number two. So we need to use it daily. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word where? In my heart. That's where it's, it's at. In my heart that I might not sin against you. Look over uh, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. A light to my path. We need that. We need that guidance. We need that direction. The Spirit will come in and guide us. 
according, cause us to keep the law of God. We need God's law for loving our Redeemer and for loving others. All right. Give you an application. Let's think about it. I've had uh, parents come to me. I've had married couples come to me. I remember the first time it came to me was I had just realized I was being called to preach and I came home from college and mom and dad were having a typical argument, discussion. And in the midst of that discussion, they were frustrated. And I kind of walked in. My dad turned to me and said, you're going into the ministry. You're supposed to know these things. What's a man to do? And I thought, oh, my goodness. I said, I think he's supposed to honor his father and mother. Be quiet. But I never forgot the question. It's a great question. What are you supposed to do when you're at your wit's end? It's like you've tried everything to make this marriage work. And it worked till their death. So, I mean, they figured it out. But you, you get there sometimes. What are you to do? Go back to your foundation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your neighbor, that's your wife's your first neighbor, your husband's your first neighbor. As yourself. I need to learn how to love again. And those two greatest commandments are the foundation for the rest. That law is on your heart. If you're a believer, if you've had a transformation of heart, you know you are to love God. And you know you're to love your neighbor. The law of God is on that heart. And you testify to it. And the Spirit convicts you when you're off. To come back. And the word convicts you that the standard is the Ten Commandments. So this dad comes to me and he says, what am I to do? My marriage has fallen apart. I said, well, let's go back to where it starts. It's with loving God. Do you agree you need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yep. Do you agree? Are you a believer? You need to love your neighbors yourself? Yes. Okay, well, let's do that. And watch your marriage flourish. He says, what do you mean? I said, what does your wife want more than anything else? She wants a godly husband. What if you have only one God in your marriage? What if you begin with the first commandment and say, God, I'm going to be all in for you. Starting today, there will be transformation. I will submit to whatever you say. Second commandment, I'm going to put away idols. Instead of loving my golf clubs and my boat, my cars and my job, before you and before my wife, I'm going to put that away. I'm not going to have vain idols. Number three, third commandment, not to speak wrongly about God or others or for God. I'm going to quit this harsh language. I'm not going to burst out in fits of anger and calling my wife names and putting her down, trying to put her in a place. My language will be sweet. God, transform my tongue according to your law. And Lord, I'm going to take the fourth commandment. I'm going to make Sunday special. That's going to be a day again for the family.
And we're going to come together as a worshiping entity and give you due. And we're going to keep your word and your law in such a way that everybody in our household will be like Joshua's family says, as for me and my house, we don't make it optional. We follow the Lord. See, this, is this going to radically change your home? Yes. Fifth commandment. We're going to have authority again in the home. It's going to be based on honor, on God having a design for the family, honoring father and mother. Sixth commandment. We're not going to treat people as though they don't mean anything. They are image bearers of God. We're not going to murder them. Not with our guns and not with our words. We're going to respect the image of God in man in this home. Seventh commandment, no adultery. God, when I see those pornographic sites those, that just pop up, click here, click there. Lord, I'm going to realize starting today that if I click that on, my wife would consider that being unfaithful. She would consider me being an adulterer, not going there. Eighth commandment, I'm not going to steal her private possessions. I'm going to give her privacy. I'm going to give her space. That's been designed by God. Ninth commandment, I'm going to quit saying bad things against her. I'm not going to lie against my neighbor. Not going to happen anymore. And I'm going to quit coveting another marriage, another relationship, another job, another place. I'm going to be content with the life God has given me. And I'm going to celebrate and rejoice in the wife of my youth all of my days. You see how the law of God purifies and sanctifies and enables us to flourish when we use it rightly instead of let Satan and his minions try to get us to throw it out. And it destroys us when we turn away. You say, ex examine your life. An unexamined life is rarely worth living. So as you lay back on your bed tonight, you look up at the ceiling, God, have I loved well today? It's a great question to examine yourself. Have I loved well today? Have I loved you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have I loved my neighbor, my family, my friends as myself? Have I loved well? You say, whew, I'm a failure. If we're failures, we need Jesus. Right? Because only Christ lives perfectly. Lord, I desperately need Jesus. You will not love well, neither God nor man, without Christ. You must trust Christ to be a good lover. And Christ gives you a standard that measures good lovers, loving him and loving others. So if you haven't trusted Christ, you must trust him. It's just a go-to. And then you come to him and ask him to take your transformed heart, where he's given you a new heart, now cause me to keep your law. And as he causes you to keep his law, you love. And you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you love your neighbor 
as yourself. That's the Christian life. That's the beauty of this wonderful system God's given us. Let me pray for us. Father, there's more to discover, but let us not be tricked to leave your word, to leave your law, and then to become bewildered as though you have not directed your people and not directed us well. Let us come back to understanding a right use of the law of God for our sanctification, for our holiness, for our conformity to Christ. Let us rest in Christ alone for our justification. Let us run to Him that we might be saved. Father, we ask that You would bless Your people again with the beauty, with the goodness, the spiritualness, the holiness of Your law. That we might love it and that we might live it. We ask that again it would be a light to our path, a lamp for our feet that we would delight in it like honey and the honeycomb. Father, we rejoice in the new covenant that you've granted. Thank you for all that Christ brings to us. May we as your new covenant people learn to, to share with our generation and the next the beauties of life in Christ. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.